Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight is my regular panelist, Troy Goodfellow. How are you doing tonight, Troy? I am so, so tired, and so glad November is over. December looking a little bit better? Oh, hell no. But I have a vacation at the end of it, so... Awesome. How are you doing? Well, uh, things are a little hectic, Troy. Uh, I'm a little bit frazzled, and uh, as you might be able to tell from the fact we're recording on Thursday night, and it's a listener question show, I haven't had a lot of time to devote to a lot of things I really enjoy doing. Uh, so I am also glad that November is over, and it cannot be mid-December soon enough. You have next week off, though, so it'll be perfect for you. Absolutely. A very special uh, Bruce-organized uh, 3MA. Yes, but that's for next week. Tonight we're doing uh, listener questions uh, because, you know, you have a lot of comments, a lot of suggestions. I get a few emails a week from listeners saying what they like with the podcast and what they don't like. Um, so I wasn't quite sure how many questions we'd get. And yesterday we said, hey, ask us questions. But we got a lot. We did. I was really surprised by the response and uh, relieved, actually, because I was worried we were going to get like four questions and going to have to milk them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not. We're, there's no way we're going to get through all of these uh, tonight, uh, but we'll get through what we can. And the ones in my form spring that I don't, uh, we don't get a chance to discuss. I'll answer, and you can always check out the form spring. It'll be linked at the bottom of the podcast. Uh, so, should we just start at the beginning? Yeah, I would say uh, lead off with your first question, Troy. Here's one from Andreas Person. I think it's a, a question that will let me get onto one of my hobby horses, so I don't want to hear what your answer is. Uh, what is your, in your opinion, what is the most strategic RTS? The most strategic RTS, I think, oh boy, I mean, it's almost predetermined what my answer is going to be. For me, for me at this point, it's, it's probably going to be, uh, no, it can't be Ruse, because Ruse actually, I would say, is the most tactically stat- satisfying. Damn it. Um, you know, come circle back to me in a minute, Troy. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to mull that over. I bet I can guess your answer. What is my answer? Your answer is Rise of Nations. No, my answer is uh, that I hate RTS. No, I mean I hate. hate I I don't hate the. the I don't hate RTSs and playing them. I hate the term RTS because I don't. I I think it's more of a mechanic than a genre. So to say the most strategic RTS is saying like the most strategic leveling up. Because I think that the RTS, what used to be a genre, and RTSs are all pretty much the same. They're all, you know, base building, resource harvesting, go kill the other dude Oh RTSs. my god, I just wrote this column. Stop talking, oh, stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry that I'm preempting your column, but this is what I've been thinking about as soon as I read this question from Andreas. That, you know, the RTS is, now it's, real time is now so prevalent. There are now ways to do huge grand strategy games in real time. Uh, which Paradox has shown you can do, and which Sins of a Solar Empire uh, shows you can do, that you know the whole idea of an RTS being like most strategic, it is such it becomes such a it is it is now the dominant mechanic, um, and I think it is to classify it as really a genre or a subgenre of strategy games. Um, I'm not sure it quite is anymore because it is such a prevalent and dominant mechanic. Um, I mean there are. Grand strategy games, that's one thing. I want to talk about uh, good skirmish uh, RTSs that actually have strategic elements, and then you want to go down to the sins of a solar empire type stuff. You still want to talk about harvesting uh, strategy games, and then, of course, yeah, of course, I'm going to say Rise of Nations, uh, because that is the game that has the most options for strategy, the most different ways to win and triumph in that game, different ways to move forward and to achieve victory, unlike games like. 
StarCraft or Age of Empires or Men of War or Company of Heroes, where it's just all about going and eliminating another guy. I mean, that's the only way you can win. Um, so you don't get to test out different types of strategies, unlike in Rise of Nations, um, where there are different ways to win. So I think that is the most strategic, classic RTS. But it is, I th- in my opinion, it's a mechanic and not really a subgenre, so it's not a question I really quite feel like answering really well, and Andreas isn't going to like that, because, you know, I, I, compared to something like Europa Universalis, compared to Sins of a Solar Empire, you compare it to um, multi-online battle arena games, which have tactics, but also some strategy involved, you know, where do you, which heroes do you send down which path, um, it's, you know, they're very simple strategies, but, you know, if you have a very good team, you want to coordinate your talents, it's a good multiplayer type game, um, so it's, it's and then you have city builders, which are real-time games, but also strategy games, um, and some of them have strategy involved, and some of them don't. So it's the RTS is just way too big to answer this question really well. I mean, no one would bother asking what is the most strategic turn-based strategy game, but for some reason we have this idea that RTS are sort of lesser strategy or they're trying to be strategy. When I've always thought that the RTS is tons of strategy involved. The big problem in the early RTSs was the strategy was always the same. It was always economic, min-maxing, leveling up as quickly as possible, and outnumbering the other guy. That's really what it was. They were rush, boom, turtle, but generally they all were just where in the game do you make your economic jump and when do you take advantage of it? Um, So so there were, there were strategies, but they were all, you know, on a very small continuum. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this is a, it's an interesting question, but I think it has a bit of a bias towards an understanding that the RTS has not, has, hasn't changed. When it really has become just something that games are. Games are real-time. It's well, now rare for me to be turn-based. Okay, so there's, so there's my rant. I'm, go- I'm going to say, because when I hear someone say, what, what, is the most ta- what is the most strategic um, RTS or most strategic real-time strategy game, whatever, when I hear someone say, you know, RTS, uh, you know, I mean, wh- what I just argued in my column is that, you know, exactly what you just said, real-time has become too prevalent to really use that to categorize games. It's, it, it's impossible. But when someone says RTS, I do associate that with, you know, harvest resources, build an army. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean... It's one of those things where if you ask me to define it, I'll struggle a little bit. But you know, I know it when I see it. You know, it's going to be the yeah. bruises, the starcrafts. So when I when I hear this question, I kind of interpret it in that in that way. Uh, yeah. And so I mean, if I were to, if I were to you know just look at what I would call like uh, you know the the classic style of RTS, things clearly descended from the Command and Conquer and Warcraft school of thought. Uh, you know, I I think I would have to say. Um, you know, I think I might have to say uh, Sins of a Solar Empire. And, and that, yep. because it's, it's working so hard to straddle the fence between being a real-time strategy game and a 4X that it can't help but involve all these elements and different, different paths to victory that you just don't see in your average RTS. So it kind of, it kind of wins, I think, almost by cheating a little bit. Yep. Uh, but uh, honestly, I mean, I love a good genre hybrid, and Sins is one of the best. So uh, that, that gets my tip of the hat. Uh, why don't you ask one of your questions? Troy Goodfellow asks, so Rob, <laughs> what's with you and Aaron Sorkin? No. Uh, <laughs> oh, I know what's with you and Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> uh, Potting Pundit asks, best game idea not implemented in more than one game? See, usually when a game's, when an idea is in 
only like one game, then that means that the idea failed. That was a, the idea. Well, the, the, that that the game failed, and therefore a lot of other things weren't in it. Um, the best idea, I would think. I mean, I hate going back to Rise of Nations all the time, but it really is the official game of uh, Three Moves Ahead. Um, I think attrition uh, in uh, Rise of Nations. Something that not a lot of games. I'm sure it's the only game that has it, but very few games have. Uh, very few RTSs, games like that, have an attrition model where you need to support your troops with, I mean, yes, war, war games have it, and yes, grand strategy games have it, but in quick skirmish RTSs, uh, there aren't a lot that really have uh, attrition mechanics that I know of. So I would say that's one, and the second one, and a game that actually failed was terrible, uh, from, from, from Pax Romana, one of the, has uh, a great election uh, mechanic, where you have to run for the political offices every year and nominate your people and lobby the and lobby them and cast omens. It was a really great political mechanic that simplified our Roman Republican elections in a very nice little way. Um, you had to balance uh, which of your senators were overseas getting prestige for your party because then they couldn't vote and couldn't run elections because they were somewhere else. And be your best people, but they're in, for winning offices, but they also have to be. But if they win the election, then they have to go out and govern a province somewhere else. So I think the election mechanics impacts Romana, I think, uh, and attrition. So those are my two. Uh, for me, I think, excluding Akron, because I think that's cheating. It's just too recent. We haven't seen whether or not that will be picked up yet. Uh, but, but I will go back just slightly farther, and I, I still hope I, I see a lot more of this going forward. But I really like the crisis mechanic in uh, Pride of Nations. Okay. Uh, it, it is yep. such a clever way to sort of change the uh, gaming of diplomacy in your average grand strategy game, uh, which is a consistent problem. Like, how do you get countries to do something that is against their interest or irrational? Like, how do you model politics going wrong as they so often do historically? Uh, I, I think Pride of Nations gets a lot of that really right. I think it can be hard to see because there's so much going on in that design that some of the novel features kind of get obscured. Yeah. But I, I think if you see it maybe in a more pared-down, more manageable-sized uh, game, uh, you, you'll really appreciate just how that sort of can throw these monkey wrenches uh, into your typical diplomacy game. And that's a shake-up that your grand strategy games, I think, badly need. Yeah, I mean, it's still too soon to see whether they picked up. I can't see how it would fit in so many other games. But I think you're right. I mean, I have this whole half-written post about crises in strategy games. I should probably finish that. The Pride of Nations, I think, is probably the one that does uh, crises the best because it does force you to gamble, uh, forces you to face the situation and put your put your country's prestige on the line. Um, and there's a chance it can spiral out of control and lead to war or you can get a negotiated settlement or everything can go completely wrong and you get humiliated. Um, I think that's actually, I think it's a really uh, great, I think it's the best, I think it's the best part of the game. I would likely agree. Uh so you have the next question. I do. Uh, next question. Have any of the three MA crew played Unity of Command? And if so, what are your impressions? I have not played Unity of Command yet, but I've been reading uh, quite a bit about it. Have you put your fingers on it, Rob? I installed it on my hard drive, and it has been installed uh, for, for many weeks. Uh, so now. So no, <laughs> but, we will, but we will get to it. I think, it ha I think it's a, I mean, it's a, no, it's a World War II game. So the, the buzz on this is really good. Yeah, I wonder how much this has to do with the art. I don't know. I suspect the art would actually be a turnoff for a lot of people. I mean, I know it's cute and simplified, but I, I just I don't see that being a selling point. For me, it actually had to sort of overcome an initial first impression for me. And well, people I trust are saying uh, good enough things about it that 
uh, I'm really intrigued by it. Yeah, the, the, the buzz is very strong, uh, so I'm certainly going to be picking it up eventually. Will I have time to play it? <laughs> Hell no. Uh, but I'm going to be picking it up. If we, if we do a podcast on it, then of course I'll play it. Uh, but it's not something I've dug into quite yet. So a few people emailed us uh, with, with sort of longer questions, and I'm going to sort of prize those apart. Uh, but we'll start with, a, with an email question from Ben Halliburton. Uh, who writes, I think we can all agree that Shogun 2 is a return to form for Creative Assembly, and the DLC they released so far hint that they understand now what makes Total War games good, at least. Where do you, see, where do you guys see the franchise going from here? Attempts to diversify seem to come with problems, and there's a clear willingness to revisit old settings with better technology. Will the next decade of Total War be the three classics, Shogun, Medieval, and Rome, iterated on repeatedly with innovation happening in many expansions or, or, and on the micro level? Should they turn to a different model or to fantastic settings? I think a fantasy uh, Total War game would be awesome. I think it would be a great idea for them to try a fantasy setting. Um, it would let them... Because they, they're not afraid to make up units, as we've seen in Rome Total War. So um, I think they could actually do some very interesting stuff in a fantasy setting. I'd like to see that. But I, I am kind of glad they've gotten away from the idea of gunpowder combat. Um, it The musket stuff in Napoleon and Empire... I, mean, I still think Empire is a decent game. Uh, uh, I Napoleon, think Napoleon's excellent. Napoleon is a very good game. Uh, so, you know, there's, I, I think that they're told that you're, I think that the uh, letter writer, Ben, Van? Uh, ben. Ben. See, I, my ears are completely gone tonight. Uh, ben is uh, right that I think we're going to see um, the medieval Rome uh, stuff come back quite regularly. I think you'll see another Rome game. Um because there's a lot you can do in that period, um, especially what we've seen in Shogun. I mean, there's some really um, great, great work done in Shogun. That I mean, I'd, I'd love to see, you know, g- g- galley battles um, in Rome. Stuff that, you know, some of the naval stuff uh, in Shogun gets close to that. I'm not quite as well. So I, I think it'd be, we will be seeing another Rome. Um, I, I'd like to see, you know, a, a Bronze Age setting. I'd like to see, you know, Egyptians and Assyrians banging together. But that's my own personal bias. Uh, but I, I do think uh, we're not going to see a whole lot more. We're not going to see World War II Total War because um, it just doesn't quite work. But I, I'd love to see a fantasy setting. Yeah, the, the Total War series is really bound to mass combat. Uh, and so whenever people are speculating, well, it, could it break into the 20th century? I really don't think so. Uh, I think the most you might see is maybe... I think you could see an attempt uh, made at a World War One game, but even that, when you consider how that the, that series has historically handled fortifications and moving troops through narrow you know, passageways, it just doesn't work there. It is an right. open-field battle series uh, based on massed bodies of troops. Uh, so, I mean, really, those, those settings they've already hit... Uh, those are its those are its natural habitats, right? Uh, and I and I would say that actually there there is un, unfinished business in e, in each one of those in each one of those eras. I mean, there's so much you could do with Rome, and I I, I did not care for Rome uh, at all, but I really thought the expansion, Barbarian Invasions, uh, w- was really superb. Uh, I think there were some really excellent ideas in Medieval too. Uh, I particularly remember one game where. Uh, the, the the Pope started playing a really devious game against me and, uh, you know, tried to stab me in the back at the very last minute to prevent my victory. And, you know, in a series that's sort of renowned for bad strategic AI, it was this one moment of really uncanny cleverness uh, that I thought, you know, if only we'd seen more of that throughout that game. 
right. uh, this could have really been something. Uh, so, I mean, I would say that they are back on form. Uh, I'd say they, they got back on form with Napoleon, and they've actually shown, uh, with at least with Napoleon's expansions, a growing mastery of the scenario that they didn't used to have. They're actually able to offer slightly different uh, gaming experiences in, in little micro expansions that I think bodes very well for revisiting these old settings and maybe something, maybe doing something fresh with them. Uh, so, I mean, I'd be happy to see them go back to these other eras and, uh, and do the job right this time. I, I look forward to that. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it, we, you know, we always say it's exciting to see studios try new things, but Creative Assembly has a good thing going, and I would be sad if these games went away. So yeah, I mean, I they're, 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 they're a, a one-trick pony, but it's a hell of a trick. Yeah, absolutely. And Shogun 2 reminded me of just how much I love it. So yeah. uh, Next question from you, Troy. Okay. Um, uh, a standard problem, this is in my form springs, and it's an anonymous question. A standard problem in games like Civ is the late game drag. Past a certain point, the game becomes a boring, slow steamroll of remaining opponents. Are there games, think, are there any games that have ways to avoid this? Or broadly, you know, uh, how can a game avoid uh, the late game drag steamroll? This is something we did a podcast on, you know, I think in our first couple of months on the problem of uh, snow, the snowball effect um, in strategy games. I just get to a point where it's just so strong that it loses its challenge. Uh, I think the problem with Civ um, is a little bit different than that, but this question is for you, Rob, so go for it. The late game in, in, in a game like Civ is a real challenge because there, there's two extremes that players really don't, I don't think players really enjoy either one. I don't necessarily enjoy either one. Uh, the first is that everything goes exactly according to plan, and the victor is kind of foreordained. And there's really just not a lot of action happening in the uh, dying stages of a game, so it's just a, you know, marking time until the victor is confirmed. Uh, occasionally, all the systems come together and you get a really exciting drag race for victory, and that's, and that's great when it happens. Uh, the other thing that has annoyed, it used to annoy me a lot more, I'm a little more okay with it now, is uh, when all the other when all the other factions sort of realize that someone's going to win, and immediately the diplomacy stops making any sort of normal human sense, and becomes game driven, uh, where everyone has to try to gang up and prevent someone from winning and sort of steal victory. So uh, that you know that's that's something I'm actually happier to see these days. Actually, I, I sort of prefer the knowing that there's going to be a moment where it all breaks into chaos. Uh, again, I will refer to uh, Pride of Nations, which uh, would sort of change the rules of rules of the game on you. Uh, if there, if there was, you know, someone who was winning just a little too clearly, uh, you know, I mean, this is a game that's trying to make it so that, like, if you look at Germany, you know, going into World War One, Germany has kind of won history. You know, if you were to stop the game in 1914, you know, Germany's Germany's history's big winner, uh, except the next thing that, you know, has to sort of be achieved is to establish this everlasting hegemony. And so a game like Pride of Nations says, well, great, you, you, you've won the prestige game, you're the most powerful nation in Europe, uh, now become the, you know, now dominate Europe. Good luck with that. And uh, I think that's, that's another fun way of, that's another fun way of uh, handling it. But I think all of these solutions involve some measure of arbitrary gaminess uh, that I think is really a matter of taste. Yeah, I mean, think of games that have uh, really good end games. A lot of them have, you know, this rush, this panic that okay, time for everything to fall apart. I think you're right. Uh, Imperialism is a classic game for me, uh, which does this. It's the game where you build your empire, and but to win, you have to dominate either the first um, 
imperialism, you had to get enough votes to be declared hegemon. In the second imperialism, it was about how many provinces you controlled. So you actually had to have, you actually had to expand. Um, and it's about dominating in Europe. And, you know, the new world was just a way for you to dominate in Europe or the old world. So, but, but, so eventually everything would lead to this huge crisis. And the question is, when do you make your move? Uh, you can make an early move and try to knock one of the great powers out. Um, and then hope things don't fall apart immediately because you're not going to be ready. Uh, or you can try to drag it out and hope you can keep up. Um, sometimes you want to provoke a war because you're strong militarily, but you're dagging the empire game. Um, but there's going to be an end game, and there are a number of turns that are counting down. Um, but you've got to get this victory. So I think that you really it's hard games that really depend on that try to keep the rules really consistent all the way through do are going to drag a bit i mean i'm i find that with uh, a lot of the paradox games i find that a bit with civ um i was you know i was surprised in civ the other night when i actually lost because i wasn't paying attention to washington in the space race you know the americans you know beat me into right. space by like two turns because i wasn't paying attention and he was on the other side of the continent and there were the russians between me and him um so you know i couldn't get to him really uh, I was kind of hoping I could actually beat him into space, but I didn't realize how far ahead he actually was, because who reads all those notices, right? Who reads all those alerts? I don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but it, generally, it's, it's, it's after, but the, all the civs have had this. Generally, when for me, when the civ hits you know, the infantry tank phase, I lose interest. Because um, especially in Civ Five, where it takes so long for the bombers to do any damn thing at all. God, the animations are so freaking slow. Um there is a leg. There, there is a long drag out bit. I mean, I don't like prolonging games like that. When I know I'm going to win, um, I know that I'm going to get a diplomatic victory. I know I have a huge science lead. I know that I can take the next capitals, you know, on a whim. Um, and it's games like Civ don't aren't built for um, quick, sudden crises that could change the whole game. Um, which is good in a way, because you don't want to invest all of this stuff in gaining prestige, gaining prestige, and gaining power, and then say, oops, sorry, you know, we give you one more impossible task, there's one more dragon yet to kill, uh, which is kind of the Pride of Nations model. Um, you know, wow, you're really, really good, but nobody likes you, so have fun. Um, and, you know, other games have this uh, balance of power mechanic. Um, they're like huge, great games of risk, where everybody hates you because you're just so damn big. So... Um, it's hard in grand strategy games, and I think that the Civ games really have not been able to answer that really well. Um, some of the scenarios do, um, especially in um, not the Civ Five scenarios. Very few of them are really, really well done. Uh, but you know, some of the Civ Four scenarios were okay. Had that bit of a rush. Uh, the the Viking one, for example, was quite well done. But generally, no, Civ isn't designed uh, to have. It's a, it's a game about progress, and progress moves in a straight line and slowly. All right, so I think I have the next question. Yes, you do. Excellent. Uh, Mike, Helmecki, Mike Helmecki writes: A common theme in strategy games is a common theme is strategy games suitable for introducing new gamers to the genre. I would appreciate now. Hang on, Troy. I would appreciate hearing what games constitute the masterclass in strategy gaming. Alternatively, what games are canon? Perhaps only one or two per subgenre. Well, Mike, it turns out we had a podcast on this very subject. I would refer you to the Three Moves Ahead episode, the Strategy Syllabus. Uh, so go give that one a listen. Moving on to your next question, what one or two designers are most worth our attention? Is it appropriate to track designers or the vagaries of working in a system so dominated by publishers uh, dominant over individual genius? Uh, 
Wow. The second part of that uh, answer interests me a little bit more. What do you think, Troy? Um, I, it, I'm not going to name which designers are worthy of your attention because everybody's tastes are different. I mean, I have designers uh, and developers that I follow very closely and I follow their careers closely, either because uh, they've become uh, people I consider friends or because they've just done some pretty damn amazing work. Um, so even if the game isn't great, it, their next game isn't the, the game they do isn't isn't great. I st- I'm still looking forward to what they've done based on what they've done in the past. So I'm not going to mention any names. But as far as is it appropriate to track designers? Absolutely. Um, yes, there is for the production system and the game design system does have a way. Uh, it, it is a collaborative effort. There isn't really one individual genius at most major studios, especially that push things you know forward in really unique large ways. But the strategy genre really isn't a game full of huge big studios or huge teams uh, anymore. Uh, there are a few, but by and large, you know, a, a good driven uh, strategy game designer can bring a vision. Um, and I think we've seen this, um, how games track and evolve uh, all the way through. I'm, I mean, do I follow Brian Reynolds now? Not really. I mean, I'm not going to say I don't play Facebook games because I do play Facebook games. Horror of horrors. Um, but do I follow what Brian Reynolds is doing now? No. Did I used to? I mean, absolutely. We had him on the Alpha Centauri show, and he talked about how, well, he wished, you know, in Alpha Centauri, he made all the units a little bit more unique, blah, 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 whatever. So in Rise of Nations, we get some unique units. Then we get to Rise of Legends, and it's the StarCraft-type model, where you have three very unique factions. So you see this evolution where he's finally gets to do what he wants to do. Um, and there are three very good games. But I think it is worth tracking designers. Um, First, for, because I'm being, personally, I do it for a lot of reasons, uh, because you can see a continuity, you can see a growth, you see game genealogy. I like knowing who worked with who, and seeing how ideas propagate throughout the strategy uh, universe. I think, it's, I think it's really neat to follow this stuff. That's the historian in me, who likes to see how things evolve, and how things change, and how ideas move from spot to spot. So yeah, I, I definitely think it's worth tracking designers, it's worth tracking developers, it's worth tracking even artists and UI designers. I mean, these are, I'm really a super stupid nerd about things like this, uh, but I think it's really worth knowing who is making your games and who did what. You know, I'm not as, I'm, I'm not as certain of, of that anymore. I think I, I've become increasingly convinced that, I mean, games are just so damn collaborative that it is so hard to isolate the contributions of one individual that once again I sort of I find myself falling back on uh, the studio as you know as as the uh, entity to track right. uh, as opposed to the designer because it's you know because it's it's hard to say uh, who did what you know does the person whose name is at the top of the credits uh, do they really deserve all the credit for it uh, and, and all of it certain you know almost certainly not but I mean it's it's difficult to assign responsibility right. uh, for work in a case like this the the other thing is this I do feel like there is kind of a um, you know, it's almost like by the time you realize that a given designer is worth paying attention to, uh, it, a lot of times it feels like the moment has passed, and they're about to be subsumed into a larger entity. Uh, right. So it's it's one of those things where you know when when someone is just coming on the scene and is you know has a project very clearly identified with them, uh, and, and and them alone, 
it, it's sort of easier to say, uh, well, this is a very, you know, this is a very exciting person. By the time you know that person by name, chances are very shortly thereafter uh, they will be off to Zynga, uh, they will be off to you know one of EA's studios, they will be off to uh, you know helm something at Startup. Who knows? Who knows where they're going to go? But at that point, I think you're back to looking at what is the organization they're a part of, because ultimately that's going to you know determine uh, what they accomplish a lot more than you know what they've done in the past. Yeah, I, I don't think you've said anything that I really, really disagree with there. I mean, I really, I mean, yes, there is a there is a problem, especially now. Um, it was certainly easier back when I started gaming to follow designers because teams were smaller and um, there was this authorial voice. I think we still do see that uh, in the independent game space uh, where a lot of the strategy game work is done. Um, I think you can see the imprint um, of. I mean, think about Vic Davis, for example. I mean, all of his games are very different, but they're very clearly, you know, certain things about them, and not just a terrible UI, are very, very Vic. Um, uh, and I love you, Vic, but, you know, you got to fix your, uh, your UI. Um, so it's, but, you know, yeah, if, if Vic Davis was to be snapped up by a larger studio, um, or to go to work at, at Pause Attack with Cliff Harris, who uh, does gratuitous space battles, um, those voices would mix and you come up with something completely different. But I think, you know, a little bit of study, you can see how some of these ideas change uh, and evolve. And um, I still think it's worth uh, following certain designers. But that's me. Your next question. My next question. Has Paradox closed out the historical strategy market for other developers? It's not a huge market, admittedly. But when I'm playing a non-Paradox game, I'm, I get irritated that it doesn't include things like missions and deep diplomacy. So I go back to EU3. Is Paradox a monopoly, Rob? No. I think Paradox... I mean, perhaps Paradox is a monopoly by default because they are not exactly uh, engaged in hotly, you know, in hotly contested territory. But, I, you know, I don't think, I don't think they've uh, closed things out. I, I think if, if you're – now, it gets a little murkier if you extend this to uh, Paradox the publisher as opposed to Paradox the developer. Because uh, I would say that, well, a game like Pride of Nations proves there's more than one way to handle the Victorian period. But Paradox publishes that too. It's, it's Paradox France. Yes, there's more than one way to handle them and none of them really well. Uh, it's, it's true. But, that's, but, but that is the thing. I, I think – you know, it's it's one of the it's one of those things where you'd say, well, that you know, they've locked up historical strategy. But I think it's telling that you say, well, I always go back to EU three. So do I. When I play other paradox games, they usually whet my appetite to go back to EU three because that, for me, is their most unquestionably successful design. Uh, so you know, I think there's I, you know, I think there's room for them to be challenged. I just think that uh, you know, a lot of people don't for a variety of reasons: uh, lack of interest in the uh, lack of commercial interest in these periods and subjects. Uh, being one of them, uh, so yeah, I, I don't think I'd go so far as to say a monopoly. Um, I would actually love to see them getting a little more competition uh, in the in those areas. What about you, Troy? Yeah, I'd like to see more competition. I'd like to see more variety. I mean, Creative Assembly has it as well. I mean, Creative Assembly makes historical strategy games. Um, they get a lot of attention for you know the great big glorious battles, but you know, I end up you know auto resolving probably more than I actually fight because they take a while to do. Um, and uh, the strategy part is there and pretty important. I'm really interested in, you know, managing the empire. So, you know, Creative Assembly is there, and they're making the big AAA ones. So Paradox isn't really alone as a developer uh, or as a publisher. Um, but, you know, the really hardcore deep ones, I mean, part of it is, you know, Paradox the publisher 
they've kind of made this their model, and they go out and they find people doing similar games, um, and you know, work with them. Then they do other types of games now, but you know, they they work with Battle Goat, and they work with um, uh, with what was Ajad, and now uh, is Paradox France, really acquired them, I suppose. So I think. I think there, and then we, we have, we have, but there are other games. There's other studios. Um, Making History, done by, why is the name escaping me? Muzzy Lane. Muzzy Lane, not a great game, but they're really good guys um, who take history very seriously and are certainly trying to build a really good World War II model. Uh, and I think eventually they're going to get there. There's too much talent there for it not to happen. But um, it is, so there, there are other options. But you know, Paradox is huge because they took a risk. Uh, they believed this market was out there and was underserved. And they went out there and they grabbed it. Um, and they made, they took some missteps, but it helped that the first Rebel Universalis was very good. Uh, EU2 was amazing. Um, and they made some stumbles along the way through the other series um, with some high points too. Uh, but they've taken the risks and they've kind of earned a lot of affection um, from uh, strategy gamers. And I think that I'm not going to say they, that it's a captive audience, but yeah, I mean, I have kind of the same stuff. I play a strategy game, a grand strategy game, and I think, well, wouldn't it be nice if we had some of this other stuff in here? Um, but I mean, I played... Uh, um, EU Rome when it came out, and I wished it had real elections, uh, like at Pax Romana, which sucked. Uh, but I wished Pax Romana. But if they could have uh, Pax Romana elections were in EU Rome, would have been great. Then they brought in more of that political stuff, so it ended up being okay. But the character management wasn't great. Blah blah blah. Um, so I I think there is room out there, but it involves a big risk. Uh, this was not a sure thing uh, that this would be a successor paradox. This was a very risky business strategy. And it's still a risky business strategy. Um, but it's, gonna ha- it's not like you know strategy gamers are amoeba and you know you, they play a strategy game and another strategy gamer pops out of their body. Um, is the next generation of gamers ready? For, is there, is there an, enough building of a strategy audience to keep a business model like that going? Um, that's, that's still a big question, I think, uh, for Paradox and for other strategy developers. Um, but they have a very strong, they have a very strong uh, impact on the, on the business. I mean, people say, yeah, "Why are you guys talking about paradox all the time?" This, you know, like they make, they make, and they publish a hell of a lot of strategy games. Um, it's really them and Matrix, um, and Matrix has a lot of war games that are, you know, kind of similar or are repackaging older titles. Um, sometimes they'll stumble on something really amazing. You know, they've they're with Slytherin now, so they have um, Field of Glory, which is a great, great, great ancient uh, light ancient war game. They have um, War in the East, which is one of the best uh, war games of recent years. But, you know, it's as far as historical strategy, it's you know, it's really a two horse town, and Paradox is the biggest horse in in the world, I think. And they've earned it, and they took risks, and I'm not sure a lot of developers larger developers want to take that risk. Paradox has the resources to do it right and strong and well. Um, I'd like to see more. I want to see other developers in here. I want to see other interpretations of these times of history. I don't want to have you know, the Paradox model be the only way these games are played and the only way these time periods are understood. As much as I like my friends at Paradox, um, I think a little bit of competition would be good for them. All right. Uh, so back to Michael Mackey. Mm-hmm. Save and reload etiquette. So when is Iron Man play appropriate? 
What drives you to explore alternative paths of play and strategy games rather than settle into comfortable tropes you're most familiar with? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, as far as, you know, um, Iron Man uh, stuff, um, the save real, I mean, I, it really depends on my mood. I mean, yeah, if it's multiplayer, you always do an Iron Man. Uh, but otherwise, it's... Um, if I'm on my own, I just want to have fun and go stomping over things, I'll save and reload. I mean, I've said in the podcast before that uh, in EU3, I often wouldn't start wars until January 2nd because the autosave was January 1. Um, who cares about the winter? I mean, but it's a great... I want to start a war. Let's see if the autosave kicks in. Let's go declare war. Because uh, I can always get it back if it starts going badly. That's cheap and it's lazy, uh, but, you know... I don't do it when I'm reviewing a game. When I'm reviewing a game, I would always play it through it appropriately so I could, you know, measure all the impact of different mechanics and the like. You know, can the AI keep a war effort going? And this was a problem in Civ V, as you might recall. You know, the AI could start a war but couldn't finish it. So, you know, this, but generally Iron Man really depends on my mood. For alternative paths of play, um, yeah, I, I like trying them all. I like trying all kinds of different types of play. I mean, I'm really trying, I've always, I mean, 4X is my preferred genre, but um, even, but within 4X, I mean, I'll try every kind of victory condition. I mean, I'm not, you know, biased towards, but the, the one, but that's good, I mean, but I tend to do peaceful paths until I'm provoked. I'm like a, like a sleeping bear, yeah. generally. I'm not, I'm, I don't generally go for the aggressive, uh, War. Um, I'll take advantage of an opportunity, like if a strong neighbor is going through civil war or lots of revolts. Hell, I'll I'll take advantage of it. But generally, um, I'm not the huge expansionist. Uh, I like the cultural development. I like the peaceful building. Uh, but you know, have an army back there. You know, deal with the second part. What what drives me to seek alternative paths of play? Uh, for me, it's largely boredom. Uh, I'm I'm not quite as curious as you are, Troy. Where I I am very happy uh, to just sort of play a game generally the same you know way or handful of ways uh until you know if it's a really good game at some point i'm going to get tired of those and uh, then i'll be like well i want to try everything i want to see how this right. works um but you know you know as an example uh eu3 i never really am a big colonialist uh mm-hmm. I, I tend to I, I tend to play really european focused games uh and that's you know that's just what i prefer to do because i find it much more exciting uh and to go back to Iron Man play, uh, Iron Man play is—I mean, it's—it's it's always appropriate. If you, if you know, if you want to play a game that way, uh, you can you can have great experiences. But what encourages Iron Man play, I think, is uh, giving you something to do when things don't work out well. Yeah. Uh, and I think Civilization has the pr- this problem where if you're not if you're not in the hunt for victory by the Middle Ages, uh, you're done. You know, you're you're, you're probably not going to bring that around. Right. So it's it's time to start cashing your chips and uh, starting a new game, which is why I think the the best part of a sieve is the first half of the game. Uh, yep. I think that's that's by design. Whereas uh, to take it back to EU three, um, you know my best games ever have been I play this this game Iron Man almost exclusively because my best games ever have come from uh, playing through complete disasters. Uh, you know I've got a game that. Uh, I haven't touched in a while, but I mean, right now, I, you know, I was playing France, and at this point, France controls almost, you know, the entire European continent. But uh, th- this all started from, uh, you know, in the 1500s. I had a crisis of, uh, 
you know, I, I had a succession crisis and lost control of France and everything went to hell in a handbasket. And by the time I got control of my, of my fortunes again, uh, I had like nothing left. Just a few provinces. Uh, Spain had sort of gobbled up a lot of Europe. And it was all about coming back from this back-against-the-wall moment uh, through a you know, combination of conniving diplomacy, uh, financial cunning, and uh, then really opportunistic sniping. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a lot of fun. I think that's one of the things that make the, makes those games special is that these, aren't, these are not games where they reach their end state so quickly and they have so little tolerance for uh, variance in your fortunes uh, that you want to quit. Uh, things can come around. For, for, uh, you can bring things back around through unexpected ways. So uh, I think it really comes down to the type of game it is in a lot of cases. Okay, question from Daniel Burwell. Uh, an email question he sent. Civ World has been open beta for a while with a generally unenthusiastic response from strategy gamers. Do you think there's a future for massively multiplayer online strategy games? If so, what do you think it will look like and who is taking those first pioneering steps? First pioneering steps, uh, I would have to say Iron Helmet Games, uh, Jake Kyber's down, uh, down in Australia, uh, Neptune's Pride, uh, Blight of the Immortals. I think... These are not. These are very simple games. Uh, they're n- they're not perfect by any means, but they're one of the very few strategy games that have really made sense to me as a, you know, as something that has a continuous online existence and involves many different people playing. Uh, they, they make they make a measure of sense that I could see somehow uh, working out as as an online strategy game. I'm not sure massively multiplayer uh, really makes sense for these types of games, but. You know, the, again, if you say early pioneering steps, uh, that's where I point my finger. I would, I, I would look at games like Age of Empires Online and say, well, that you know, there's, you know, that's that's not leading anywhere good. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people taking steps in that direction. I sort of question the direction of those steps. So, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's just the, the, I, we've seen this is something we've seen it done badly so often that I kind of feel like the well is a little bit poisoned when I when I sit back and think about it. So it's it's very hard for me to say. Well, yeah. you know, here's some promising ideas. I mean, the massively multiplayer online stuff. I mean, it's, it's been around, but it's just the 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 the, the Travian or Evany model, where you build up a city and you form your little alliances and you attack other cities. I mean, it's not, you know, it's this is the massively multiplayer dominant model in strategy games. Um, and you can see a little bit of that um, in Civ Online uh, and the, the, the what's the Facebook game of Civ, which is really not very good at all. Um, but I mean, I I think I think End of Nations is a game to watch. Um, coming out from Tryon, um, it's an RTS uh, that is plays like an MMO. Uh, you form your guilds and your groups, and you take down dungeons with strategy, and there are counters. And there's this huge meta game that I don't quite understand the meta game part of it, um, where there are different factions, and you try to control territory. I think uh, so. It is. I think that is the game to watch if you want to have a massively multiplayer online strategy games. Um, that's what you want to get to. I mean, you have persistent development of characters in strategy games, the whole the, the, the mobile model where you have a hero and you level them up and you get better and you acquire equipment and the like, um, and you get your skills um, and you improve your skills. So those things are out there. But I really don't... Uh, right now, I, I would say End of Nations is the game to watch. Um, I've, seen, I've seen very little of it. What I saw, I was very interested in. 
Um, the guys at Tryon made a very good MMO, uh, the Tryon team Rift, um, which um, has there's a chance uh, it's not going to take down World of Warcraft, but it's still going, and still has a lot of loyal loyal fans. Um, you know, all of these many many months out, which is really a nice thing to see um, because it does have public cooperative stuff that you don't have in other games. So I really like I, I like the guys at Tryon. Um, the End of Nation team is, of course, a different team. I think that's the MMO game to watch. A couple questions from Eric Swain. Uh, I've I've been meaning to ask you and the crew, what is a good RTS for those not familiar with the genre? Uh, I looked at some of the games you hyped up, like Sins of a Solar Empire, and couldn't even begin to play it. Uh, so where should Eric start, Troy? Oh, God. Um, depends on the type of RTS. Um, Sins of a Solar Empire... I'm surprised you couldn't understand it, because it's actually a pretty transparent little RTS. Um, but, and Eric's a smart guy. Uh, I know Eric's uh, work quite well, and he's a very t- smart guy. So if he can't figure out Sins of a Solar Empire, then there's something wrong with Sins of a Solar Empire. Uh, I have, have a lot of other questions, but how do I get into this? How do I get into that? And this is certainly a problem with strategy games. Um, I mean, I generally have had good luck uh, with you know, some of the simple traditional RTSs. Um, uh, I, th- I think Ruse is a good place to start um, as far as a more recent game. First, because it's excellent. Um, second, because it's quite easy to understand. You collect cards, and each card it says what it does very, very clearly. Um, and it's about seizing territory in a very transparent way. So I would say that that is a good way to go. Uh, I would say Ruse. If you, if you can't get the Sins of a Solar Empire, try Ruse. But again, this goes back to the entire problem with RTSs. If you can understand Ruse, that will not help you at all in understanding Sins of a Solar Empire. Uh, and if you understand Sins of a Solar Empire, that's not going to help you with StarCraft one damn bit. And if you're good at StarCraft, you're still going to be lost in Victoria 2. Right. Of course, everybody's going to be lost in Victoria 2. So what gonna, if you want to play a real-time strategy game, um, the type of real-time strategy game. This is why, you know, most turn-based strategy games are pretty much, you know, kind of the same you take a turn and but you can do whatever you want within that turn uh real-time strategy games require dividing your attention deciding what's important and what's not important and setting priorities and moving around and sins of solar empire yeah requires a lot of i mean the, it moves pretty elegantly and slowly for an rts but um there's still a hell of a lot to pay attention to um especially when ships start jumping in and out in the middle of combat um, but I mean, if you want to play a real-time strategy game that's good, and say you're playing a real-time strategy game uh, that's relatively recent, I would say Ruse. Uh, I want to do a classic, uh, once again, Rise of Nations, uh, because I have a whole video cast I want to do on why Rise of Nations is a perfect intro RTS. But I'd have to get my camera set up properly and the right lighting and find time. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, when you're considering the, the RTS, going back to what Troy and I were talking about initially... Uh, is that you really do have to decide what part of that formula matters the most to you. Do you want a StarCraft, uh, Warcraft-type experience? Uh, then there's, you know, you probably should start with a game like, uh, well, StarCraft Two has some good tutorials. Uh, or, yeah, you, can, you know, does. you can hit the bargain bin. Uh, I will swear up and down by Age of Mythology every day of the week. Um, you know, these are, these are good places to learn that sort of game. Uh, if you're a little more comfortable with the with the 4x, uh, then then I would say that I would say sins uh, and just you know play it on a slow speed and, and give it some time. But it, it can be a little daunting. Uh, if you're interested in pushing dudes around and playing you know sort of a a war game with resources, uh, 
then yeah, I would definitely say a game like Ruse, uh, you know, anything by Relic is really appropriate. Uh, Company of Heroes is you know very cheap these days and and still fantastic. Uh, so I mean, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of options out there. I think you really just have to sort of narrow down what your interest is in the genre, and uh, you know, sort of sort of you know, tackle games, uh, tackle games that sort of fit that bill. I think, you know, guys like us, Troy, sort of have, have an advantage in that we saw this, you know, we, we've been playing these games long enough that we've sort of yep. seen the entire genre develop. So we've seen every branch in the evolution and we followed all of them. So right. we can locate ourselves very quickly where we want to be. Uh, but approaching it these days, you know, saying, well, I want an RTS. Uh, yeah, it's a, the genre has outgrown the term, but we still, we still use that term. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. Strategy games are hard to just jump into right now. Uh, we're at that point. There's something that Soren has talked about, um, the idea that you know, strategy games have their flight sim moment. Um, there are lots of simple strategy games out there, some really great stuff um, on the tower defense strategy games. There are uh, all of, uh, Greed is a great uh, light strategy game. There are all kinds of them out there. Uh, but they don't... The genre is just so damn big... Um, that you know, you there aren't really the intro titles that lead into larger titles, except for P- Panzer Corps, maybe um, is probably uh, a close or Field of Glory, um, as far as understanding you know war games and how everything fits together. Uh, but yeah, j- jumping in and starting with something like Sins of a Solar Empire, which is actually a very popular RTS, a lot of people have learned it quite easily. Um, it does as as things are added to it. It's because expansions make things more complicated. Yes, they do. I have a friend who, uh, or uh, someone on Twitter who, bought uh, the Europa Universalis pack and said, "Oh, I have everything. You know, where should I start?" I said, "Don't start with China because you have Divine Wind. Don't start with Japan because you have Divine Wind, because you will not understand why they are doing things the way they are doing things. Um, you'll have to start. I, this is a question someone else asked. How do I start in the Paradox games? And this is." really something for a post uh, I should probably write, because I was going to write a guide and that was like over a year ago I said I would write a guide. Oh, I don't have time for that. Uh, but it, it is hard. Um, I don't think people really appreciate it. I mean, I, it's hard for me to get into racing games, but I, but I have driven a car. Um, and I know the idea of racing games. I mean, they're, they're pretty damn simple. But you know, how do I... Sins of a Solar Empire, I mean, what's more important? Crystal or metal? Um... Why does the tech tree? Why are the tech trees? Are they similar? Are they different? What is what leads into what? What are these two pirates doing? Um, it's if you understand the basic mechanics and origins and evolution of some of these concepts, you know, Sins is a very transparent and obvious game. But you have to just jump in. I mean, it's probably a game that I've overestimated how approachable it is. Let's just say that. I think it's a problem for a lot of us strategy people. We overestimate how approachable um, some strategy games are. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, my real answer to this question would be Warcraft 2. You know, I mean, in a perfect world where backwards compatibility is working yeah. just the way it should, and, you know, what you know, what, what game should you play to really understand what RTSs are about, and, you know, it's easy and approachable, Warcraft 2 would win, win hands down for me. Uh, but, you know... Well, I mean, I would say, I mean, you mentioned Starcraft 2, and I think Starcraft 2 is actually a pretty decent place to start. Because it is, I mean... It, it's, I think it's harder to get into than something like Rise of Nations or Warcraft 2 because it does have 
three very different factions that require three very different strategies. Yeah. Um, I, so just jumping, but it does have excellent tutorials. It does let you, you know, learn the basics of RTS play. But you know, if you're really good at the Terrans, but then you want to play Protoss, you've got to learn them all over again. Um, so there is that limit there. But uh, like, but it does have uh, a really good instructional stuff. So, um, and it's popular. So you can always ask somebody. I mean, if you're playing something like EU3. People always ask me because they don't have any friends who play it. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, I guess. But StarCraft Two, you're gonna find somebody online who can tell you what's going on in StarCraft Two. Do you have any more questions? I have so many more questions. We're never gonna get through them all. Uh, but I'll ask you another one here. Uh, what is the po- the really popular game you hate the most? I have so much hatred. Oh, you're full of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of lost in a reverie here of my resentments. So uh, again, give me, give me a moment. Uh, well, you've had, you've had some time to think about it, Troy. Uh, tell us what you loathe. I don't loathe a lot of really popular games. I get accused of loathing popular games. I get accused of hating StarCraft. Uh, though I don't hate StarCraft 2. I don't think I don't think StarCraft 2 is really original RTS. I don't necessarily think I don't think it's more original or interesting than Ruse, but I like it just fine. I'm trying to think of a really popular strategy game that I don't like. I mean popular games I don't like. I mean probably some of those too. <sighs> See, this is a hard question. I really I don't really hate a lot of games. There are games that you know I don't I don't enjoy. Um, there are games that I think are overrated. Uh, but as far as a game that is really popular, makes no st- whose appeal just escapes me, I'm really ch- challenged on that. Um, uh, probably um, Sim Sim City Three. Every Sim City after Sim City Two Thousand, I'll say that. Uh, those are the games that when they kept adding new stuff, and it got to the point where I just wanted to stop adding stuff because I wasn't building great cities in Sim City Two Thousand. It was a, a game I could enjoy playing. It got to the whole real city manager stuff, and I could never understand people who really, really dig SimCity 3000 and SimCity 4000, SimCity whatever. Um, but these are very popular. There are huge communities devoted to the SimCity series, and uh, SimCity societies came out, and I thought, you know, it wasn't great when it came out. It became really, really good uh, with patches. But I said, yeah, this is really appealing. There's a lot of neat mechanics and stuff here, but, you know, the hardcore SimCity people are like, oh my god, where are my where are my water pipes? And there are no water pipes. Great. Who needs water pipes? And where are my city bonds? No city bonds. Perfect. You know, this is great. Um, so I would say the SimCity series after SimCity 2000 are the popular games that I just stopped playing, I would say. Uh, popular games that I can't stand. Uh, the Command & Conquer series. Ah. Uh, I've, I've, I, you know, we talked about this uh I think two years ago, uh, when I was sort of new to the show, and we were talking about, like, we were looking forward to uh, 2010, I think it was. And, uh, you know, I said right up front, I thought whatever the next Command & Conquer game was coming out, I thought, you know, I was pretty certain it was going to be garbage, because so many of them uh, have, been, have been garbage over the years. Boy, were you right. I absolutely was. I felt totally vindicated, uh, I, you know. <laughs> that, that's why you're the boss now. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it, actually, that's when we decided, well, you, you'd screwed up the Command & Conquer call, so, you know, it, it was over. It's sort of like uh, the Communist Party here. In, uh, yeah, it just took some time for them to get me out of my seat, but that was it. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but no, so that's a series that, I, I, you know, since Red Alert, since the original Red Alert, I have increasingly not gotten it. Um, I think it sort of fell in love with its own quirks. And increasingly, it just it, it just didn't stand up next to what uh, Blizzard was doing, 
and uh, then pretty much where the rest of the genre went. So I mean, that's that's a series right there that I just the the appeal completely baffles me. After a certain point, the game sort of shambles onward uh, for reasons I can't understand. So there's that. Last question. Uh, it's a meaty one from Eric Swain. Secondly. What is the core nugget, the center, that defines the strategy genre? No matter what you do to any of the tropes, if you have that, that core, the game is essentially a strategy game. What is that? Find the form, Troy. Find the form. See, this is going to be the introductory chapter of my book. Uh, but as, <laughs> I say, Glaucon. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. I get to the platonic ideal of strategy games. Um you know, it's hard, but I would say, in general, with broad brush, a strategy game is any game in which there are there is the collection or spending of limited resources towards a long-range plan. I would agree with that. I would also say that the physical execution of the task cannot be the decisive element. Explain that. I, I, you know, I'm not I, that disagree with what you're saying. Right. So, I, you know, I think as you're working toward these plans, I, you know, I say what disqualifies, uh, you know, what what disqualifies shooters. There's a lot of games that I would say are strategic uh, in other genres. Shooter, you know, shooters right. among them. But just because a game has strategy, it doesn't make it a strategy game. Right. And I would say one of the, one of the ways they end up disqualifying themselves from being strategy is that what it ultimately comes down to is yes, the you know, mastering that strategic element is important. But ultimately, it comes down to some sort of like physical task, like you know, putting you know, putting shots on target, or um, you know, simply having quick reflexes enough, to, right. you know, to to keep up. At that point, I think you you've sort of you sort of blurred the lines. I you know, I question whether, you know, I mean, it creates sort of this gray area. I think for competitive RTSs like StarCraft, um, just as I think sort of speed chess uh, ends up existing in a kind of in a kind of gray area. Because uh, you, you've sort of taken a lot of that deliberative component out where you're building this far-reaching plan and you're trying to f- decide optimal paths. But, you know, I, I, think when, I think when it falls too heavily on the balance of speed, reflexes, physical prowess, at that point you are eroding what makes a strategy game a strategy game. Yeah, it's a couple... I mean, it's, I, think that's the, I think those are the... the those are, that's the nub of it. I mean, just because it's because too much role-playing in it doesn't make it a role-playing game. Um, so I think there are... And game of platforms into platformer, um, but you know games can have role playing elements and be strategic, um, or have shooting. You have role playing elements and be a shooter, but doesn't make them role playing game. But I think strategy is the same way. But yeah, I think you know long range planning, acquisition of resource, and determining factor. Determining factor of victory is a, is the mastery of those two concepts. Even if your reflexes are good in StarCraft, um, until you master all that other stuff, um, we have that. Yeah, I'll stick with that. Yeah. So, you want to call it there? Uh, unless there's one question you're burning to ask. I have, like, so many questions. There were so many good questions. Um, and so many. I want to ask, you know, um, here's a question that's actually that's going to be a very good topic. I mean, um, I think we should all do a topic on it. Uh, Ann Hubler asked a question about nonviolent strategy game themes. And somebody else suggested it as a topic for the podcast. So, I think that is actually something we could uh, deal with in an entire podcast um, instead of uh, a question. It's a very, very good question. Um yeah, I think that will actually do. We have some great questions. You know, Vin Wraith asked a question about books, and iNinja asked a question about, about drafting systems. A lot of great anonymous questions on my form spring. 
Um, yeah, I, we've we got a lot of questions, and considering we only asked you guys to do this yesterday, um, thanks for coming through. Yeah, it actually uh, does, you know, make me wonder if perhaps we we should do this more often, uh, especially because it'll give people a little chance to respond to what we've said recently. Uh, yeah. Rather than just doing it in the comments, where we can get a little more of a dialogue going. But I do think because there's, you know, you know, Troy. I mean, you and I both are familiar with this dilemma a lot. There's so many good ideas that just would not be a full discussion that yeah. we bat them around and they go on the shelf and they just gather dust there. And I kind of feel like they actually come up a lot in these listener question shows. Yeah, maybe every every couple of months we do a good listener question show instead of doing them once a year or whatever. Yeah, and this and this time we'll we'll actually hold to that. Uh, maybe once right. a season. But uh, anyway, thanks so much for your questions and yeah. uh, Troy. Can I say for... a, can I say a word first? I want oh, to say. I want to say a nice farewell to my friends at GamePro.com. Uh, if you haven't heard, GamePro uh, the magazine and the website are closing uh, next week on the 5th. And a lot of really good people are going to be laid off. Uh, they're, they're friends of Strategy Gaming. I know Rob's uh, done some diaries over there on Strategy Games. Tom Chick had his Strategy Game column moved to GamePro after it was at GameSpy. Um, you know, the magazine wasn't always great. Um, John Davison really turned it around and made it a magazine full of great and interesting features, and the website came alive, some really great editors. Uh, so I want to wish everybody uh, who's not sure about their future at GamePro well. Uh, you're good writers, uh, many of you. Um, I've had many pleasant interactions with you over email, and I wish you all luck, because I know how hard it is out there. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck to uh, especially my editors, uh, Kat Bailey and Will Herring. Uh, you guys are fantastic. Uh, it was a, one of my favorite outlets to work with. And I uh, hope you all land on your feet real soon and we work together again. Uh, good luck, everyone. Again, thanks for your questions and uh, thanks for helping me shotgun through these so quickly, Troy. Uh, happy to help. Good night, all. Good night.